Well, if you would open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're still in the early stages of our study of God's Word as revealed to the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Last week we explored the very first section of teaching that Paul engages in with the church in Corinth and primarily dealing with the division that existed within this church. And Paul made this urgent call for them to be united, to recognize the division and to be united. He speaks to them as brethren, indicating that they are all a part of God's family. And he urges this call to unity in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, communicating that the words and the principles that he would teach are consistent with who Jesus is, with what Jesus himself taught. As we looked at last week in the high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And so Jesus prayed that you and I, that the Corinthian church would experience the same kind of oneness that is experienced within the Godhead. That that unity would communicate to the watching world around us that we belong to Him. So Paul talked about this urgency to have unity in speech, which literally means you all say the same thing in terms of doctrine and Christian living and what is actually truth as revealed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of God's Word. Paul said that there should be no divisions among you, among you no schisms that are ripping or tearing the church apart, but instead... You are to be united. You are to be mended back together from that which had been torn or broken or separated and that they be united in the name of Christ as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are united together in the Godhead. They are to be in agreement internally in their thoughts and externally in their actions. And so Paul has learned of this conflict that exists within the church and he, that they have quarreled over their loyalties to human teachers, specifically Paul himself, Apollos, the pastor that replaced Paul, Peter or Cephas, who had apparently had traveled through the city of Corinth. Each of these men had an impact in the lives of the people, leading them to Christ, baptizing them in the name of Christ, teaching them the truths of Christ, discipling them. And there were some who disregarded all human teachers and claimed a special revelation or teaching from Christ himself. And virtually what they said is, we don't need Paul, we don't need Apollos, we don't need Cephas, because Christ speaks to us directly apart from anything that they have ever said. So Paul confronts them over the lack of oneness in Christ, and he points them back to the cross, the heart of the gospel message, where they can find unity in doctrine and an applied Christian living. So verse 17 that we looked at last week, the final verse that we looked at, is a segue to what we're going to look at in greater detail today. And here's what verse 17 says for us. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now, Paul is not minimizing the importance of baptism, but instead he is emphasizing his call as an apostle, and that is to preach the gospel. And he prefaces that and speaks directly to the heart of the matter within the church at Corinth. And he says that I did not preach the gospel in cleverness of speech. 
I did not preach the gospel according to worldly wisdom, nor did I preach the gospel with skilled rhetoric. I simply preached the gospel of Christ. Jesus on the cross as a sacrificial atonement for the sinfulness of mankind, providing a way for man to be brought back to God. This is what Paul was saying, that he was called as an apostle to do. Now, as we remember, the Greeks were in love with philosophy. It was what the entirety of their culture was built around. In Paul's day, it is said that they had as many as 50 different identifiable philosophical parties or influences, each of which had different sets of leaders and teachings, each of which were vying for acceptance by their audience. Each had its own view of man's origin, man's significance, man's destiny, and relationship to the gods of which they had many. These excuse me, these philosophies provided meaning for life. It determined their values. It dictated how they related to one another. And it also defined what was man's inherent purpose in this world. These philosophies provided influence in religion, in politics, in society as a whole, in the economy, and in the educational directives of the day. As you might guess, when there are 50 different identifiable philosophical positions, they didn't agree with one another. There was a constant battle being waged about which philosophy was correct and true and which one merited the man to follow. Unfortunately, many of the Corinthian converts carried the spirit of philosophical identity into the church. In a similar way, when we are saved as pagans in the world, whatever our identity was, whatever our sense of truth was, whatever the cultural influence in our life was, we bring this with us into our conversion. And it is only through the transforming work of God's word that that falseness in our life gets replaced with the truth. This is the battle taking place within the church at Corinth, and it's the same battle taking place in the church today. Whatever it is that we bring with us into our conversion, we bring with us into the church, and it is only the truth of God's Word that can correct what is wrong with our philosophy, with our sense of belonging and identity, with how we understand who God is and how man can relate to Him, and it is God's Word that corrects what is wrong in our lives. They had trusted in Christ. They had recognized their need for redemption. They recognized God's provision of Christ on the cross as, a, as an element of His grace towards them. But what they wanted to do, and what many today want to do, is they want to add human wisdom or philosophy to what Christ had already done for them on the cross. John MacArthur says this about philosophy. He says, a Christian has no need of human philosophy. It is unnecessary and more often than not misleading. Where it happens to be right, it will agree with Scripture and is therefore unnecessary. Where it is wrong, it will disagree with Scripture and is therefore misleading. It has nothing necessary or reliable to offer. By nature, it is speculation based on man's limited and fallible insights and understanding. 
John MacArthur did not invent that understanding himself. He did not create that. He derived that from what Scripture says. This is why Paul would say to the church at Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You can see the polarization that exists within the church in Corinth, within our culture today, even within our church today. There is this battle over what is philosophical, what is human, and what is actually truthful and comes from Christ himself. A love for philosophy did not help us when we were unbelievers, and it did not help us now that we believe, so we must let it go, we must give it up, and we must singularly derive our understanding of our purpose and our significance from the truth of God's Word. Well, it isn't any different today with what Paul is dealing with in the church in Corinth. The world today is still caught up in the admiration of and worship of human opinion, of human wisdom, and human desires and aspirations. Men are continually trying to figure out on their own what life is all about, where it came from, where it is going, what it means, if anything, and what can and should be done about it, if anything. Have you ever heard someone say that the greatest question in life is, why am I here? Where am I going? What does it all mean? What is it all about? Well, for millennia, philosophy has tried to answer those questions. Just as in Paul's day, these ideals have infiltrated the church and are impacting the church's ability to live out the gospel in a meaningful way. Now, as Paul deals with the gift of speech and wisdom, and as Paul calls for this urgent unification in all that we say, there is this call to be consistent about who we say God is, who we say Jesus is, what God has done on the cross, how man can be saved, how man ought to live his life. This battle continues to be waged today. Man's alleged wisdom is a battle with God's wisdom as revealed to us in the Word. God's Word is the only true source of wisdom and is the only wisdom that is reliable and necessary for mankind in general, but most specifically for Christians today. All truth that God intends for us to have, all that we need to know, is in His Word. Now, the Bible doesn't deal with mathematics. It doesn't deal with science. It doesn't deal with some of these specialties. But all the wisdom that we need to know about man's origin, man's meaning, man's destiny, and etc. is found in the Word of God. It doesn't need the addition of human wisdom or philosophy, which will always fall short of His Word and most often will contradict or distort God's Word. You've heard of truisms? Truisms mean there's an element of truth in what is being said, but the entirety of it isn't true. And this is not what we would say about God's Word. God's Word is truth, period. From beginning to end, everything in between, it is truth. Scripture stands alone. It is reliable, it is sufficient, and it is complete. Human wisdom, epitomized in philosophy, has always been a threat 
to God's revelation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very prominent pastor in the 19th century, said this. The whole drift toward modernism, he died in 1980, that has blighted the church of God and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. Here's what I want to read for you, and this is uh, from John MacArthur's book, The Truth War, and we're studying this in the second hour, and we have a few copies left if you would like to, re- if you'd like to, to purchase this and read along. There is this thing taking place in our culture today called the emergent church. You might have heard of that. Oh, the emergent church. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it means. But I've heard of that, right? It's founded by Robin Kristen Bell, and they founded Mars Hill Church, which is an incredibly fast-growing church in the state of Michigan. Here's what they have said. The Bells found themselves increasingly uncomfortable with church. Life in the church had become so small, Kristen says. It had worked for me for a long time. Then it stopped working. The Bells started questioning their assumptions about the Bible itself. Quote, discovering the Bible as a human product, as Rob puts it, the pastor, rather than the product of of divine fiat. Quote, the Bible is still in the center for us, but it's a different kind of center. We want to embrace mystery rather than conquer it. Kristen says, I grew up thinking we figured out the Bible, that we know what, that we knew what it means. Now I have no idea what most of it means, and yet I feel like life is big again. Life used to be black and white, and now it's full of color, because the Bible is the center, but it's not really the center. It's a little off-center. What happens when you roll a wheel that is off-center? What's it do? Man, it wobbles, and it eventually wobbles and it falls over. Have you ever had a car, a tire on your car that was out of balance, and you've got this annoying thumping or this vibration or this thing going on? It's because the wheel isn't balanced. And this is what the emerging church is basing its whole existence on, is that the Bible is the center, but it's not just the center. It goes on to have this quote in the book from Brian McLaren, who has written nearly a dozen books that promote the ideals of the emerging church. And here's what he says. He's quoted in Christianity Today saying, I don't think we've got the gospel right yet. I don't think the liberals have it right, but I don't think we have it right either. None of us have arrived at orthodoxy. How can you ever get to a conclusion like that? I'll tell you how you get to that. You say the Bible isn't sufficient. We need to add something to it so that it makes sense to my inability to understand what God's Word says. Ken said this in our conversation. They create mud and they like the mud. Greg might have said that. Did Greg say that or did Ken say that? One of these two guys said that last week in our discussion, and it made perfect sense. They create mud because they like the mud. The emergent church, the postmodern ideal, is simply this. You cannot be certain about anything. Unless it's confirmed in your reality, like gravity, or the laws of physics, or mathematical equations, 
You cannot be certain about anything. Well, what Paul says to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth is just as relevant to us today as it was to them as they battle over what is central to their lives as Christians. Read along with me. Very long introduction, but it's necessary. Read along with me in verses 18 through 25 of 1 Corinthians. Here's what God's word says to us. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So we have a single point in our outline this week, and uh, several other points to make as a result of that. Number one, or letter one, Roman number one, is the wisdom of God. So as we look at our title, what I've titled is Fools and Wise Men, it should always be understood in the context of what God has revealed to us in His Word and how man accepts or rejects this revelation, thereby making them fools or wise men. The wisdom of God is, number one, expressed through the cross. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So when Paul uses the phrase, the word of the cross, what he means is, it's message. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word, word there in verse 18 is the same Greek word that we would see for the word speech. And verse 17, it is the Greek word lagos. Paul is contrasting man's word, which reflects man's wisdom, with God's word, which reflects God's wisdom. So what is the word of the cross? What is the message of the cross? Well, the message of the cross includes the entire gospel message and its work, God's plan and provision for man's redemption. It's as simple and it is as concise as that. In its fullest sense, the message of the cross is God's total revelation for His revelation centers in the cross. Everything that God said in the Old Testament was looking forward to the cross. Everything that God says in the Old Testament is looking back as an application or an explanation of the cross. And everything that the Bible speaks about our future glory and revelation is a celebration of what Christ has done on the cross. The entirety of God's revelation is centered in the message of the cross. This is why Jesus would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except 
by me. It hinges upon the cross. What we do with Christ determines the entirety of our life. So, as the human wisdom man examines the cross, there is only one option, letter A. It is foolish. The cross is foolish as human wisdom examines what is being revealed there. The Greek word for foolish is moriah, and it's where we get our word moron. To unbelievers who rely on their own wisdom, the message of the cross is moronic and absolute nonsense. This is what Paul is saying. The idea that one man, even the Son of God, could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the eternal destiny of every person who has ever lived is stupid in the minds of unbelievers. Those who have given themselves over over human wisdom and human philosophy, they look at the cross and they say, that's ridiculous. You expect me to believe something as stupid as that? Not a chance. It allows no place for man's merit, man's attainment, man's understanding, or man's pride. You know what man has to do with the central message of the cross? Not a cotton-picking thing. It's for us, but it isn't from us. It's a polar contrast to human wisdom. The idea that God took human form was crucified and raised in order to provide for man's forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven is an idea that is far too simple, far too foolish, and far too humbling for the natural man to accept. And yet it is the belief of those who are perishing. They stake the entirety of their eternity on something that doesn't make sense to them, that they can't understand or explain. They can't say, I had a part in that. They can't say, I helped to procure that. And so they reject it because to them it is simply foolish. Those who are wise and their own understanding are on their way to an eternity separated from God because they don't understand, nor do they accept, the message of the cross. But for those who are saved, the cross is, the cross is powerful. Human wisdom is weak. It is incapable of enabling man to know God, to know his wisdom, or to know his provision. But since the word of the cross contains the wisdom of God, it is powerful and able to save the lost sinner. That is why Paul would write to the church in Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. All of mankind is in the process of being saved or of perishing. Paul uses the term, excuse me, Paul uses the, the term in verse 18, um, I'm sorry. Uh, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul uses the future tense in this since our salvation 
isn't yet consummated. We're still working it out. It doesn't mean that we're working for our salvation, but we're still working out our salvation. And our passing, I need to rephrase, I'm sorry. Paul used the term, Paul used the term in the future tense, since our salvation isn't consummated until our passing, or until he comes for us. And the same is true for those who are perishing. They aren't fully dead and separated from God until they pass from this physical world or until Jesus comes back. So in God's wisdom, he has expressed his wisdom through the cross. And secondly, in God's wisdom, he nullifies human wisdom. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now, when you see the all caps in your Bible, it means that it's a quote from the Old Testament. And so we find this in Isaiah 29, verse 14. And as we look at what is being said here, there is most certainly a future eschatological implication here. But when Isaiah prophesied it, the Assyrian army was on the doorsteps of the southern nation of Judah, was ready to attack Judah, and would most certainly defeat her. They would capture her, and they would take her away, just as had happened in the northern northern kingdom. But God told Isaiah that this would not happen, because he would intervene for Israel. And so without any human help, and against human wisdom, Weak and inferior Judah would be victorious as God would defeat Assyria for her. So this is what we read in Isaiah 37. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 195,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, the Israelite men rose in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And so what Paul does is he takes this event in the, na- in the history of the nation of Israel, and he applies it in the sense of what God is going to do with human wisdom. So, as human wisdom attempts to understand and explain man's existence and purpose and destiny, and does so with philosophy that is inconsistent with the truth of God's word, God simply nullifies all philosophy through the word of the cross. So, this forward-thinking permanence that is implied as what will happen one day, God will establish his kingdom on the earth and believers will live under the theocratic rule of God, able to do so by faith in the word and the work of the cross. So when the nation of Judah was looking at a sure defeat, they had no power of their own. They had no wisdom of their own as, as to how they could escape this. They were simply sitting ducks waiting For the Assyrians to come and God nullified their human wisdom, their inability to do something to defeat the Assyrians, and he accomplished it on their behalf. That is exactly what the message of the cross is for the spiritual deliverance of mankind. As we consider the wisdom of God and the message of the the cross, we need to be reminded of this, number three. That God's wisdom cannot be defeated. Verse 20 says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So here Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions. And these questions are a request 
for these people to respond to the wisdom of God that has been expressed through the cross. So when Paul uses the term the wise man, he refers to the Greek, to the Greek philosopher or to the Greek thinker. He uses the term the scribe here, and it refers to the Jewish scholar or the one who is an expert in the law, as Paul will address the Jews in verse 22. And the phrase, the debater of this age, is a generalization for the sake of the Corinthians themselves and probably relates to current modern philosophy in this city. The final question that Paul poses to them is as much of a statement as it is a question. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The answer to that is a resounding yes. Because the wise man and the scholar and the debater of the age can never nullify God's wisdom expressed at the cross. They might deny it. They might reject it. They might say that's absolutely ridiculous. But it doesn't change the truth of God's wisdom expressed through the cross. All that man has ever said or ever will say about his origin, his purpose, or his destiny has been declared foolishness by God through the message of the cross. Because if human wisdom and human philosophy doesn't align with the message of the cross, then it is wrong, it is distorting, and it is misleading. We cannot know God, or please God, or serve God, or look forward to meeting God apart from the message of the cross. That message contains the wisdom of God. Our world is filled with human philosophy or worldviews, and it has not improved man's existence at all. Not in any way. How much closer are we to eliminating poverty, hunger, ignorance, crime, immorality? How much closer are we to eliminating those things in our day than when Paul penned this to the church of Corinth? One author says this. Our advances in knowledge and technology and communication have not really advanced us. It is from among those who are intelligent and clever that the worst exploiters, deceivers, and oppressors come. We are more educated than our forefathers, but we are not more moral. We have more means of helping each other, but we are not less selfish. We have more means of communication, but we do not understand each other any better. We have more psychology and education and more crime and more war. We have not changed except in finding more ways to express and excuse our human nature. Throughout history, human wisdom has never basically changed and has never solved the basic problems of man. Human wisdom sometimes sees the immediate cause of a problem, but it does not see the root, which is always, always sin. How does philosophy eradicate the power of sin? It can't. What can eradicate the power of sin? The message of the cross. What is it that will change the amount of crime and immorality in our world? It is the message of the cross. When Christians live out the message of the cross 
immorality in the church goes away. Incorrect doctrine disappears. The kinds of problems that Paul is addressing will never, ever exist. Human wisdom can't fix what ails the human heart. Only the message of the cross. And in God's wisdom, God has made it this way. The only way for man to be victorious over human philosophy and its weakness is through the cross. There's no other way. You can herald Socrates and Plato and any other ancient philosopher and they will never fix what's wrong with the human heart. Only the message of the cross can do that. God's wisdom, number four, is spiritually appraised. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So what Paul's saying here is in God's wisdom and and by God's design, he made it impossible to know him through human wisdom or through human philosophy expressed in unbiblical worldviews. When Paul uses the phrase the world here, he speaks of all humanity for all of time, not just the Corinthian world and not just the world here in Chester County, Pennsylvania, but all humanity forever and forever. None of the world's wisdom will never, excuse me, will ever enable anyone to know God. And God has made it that way on purpose. Instead, what God has chosen to do is He's chosen to do through what the world would regard as foolishness to reveal His wisdom through the message of the cross. All man has to do to understand the wisdom of God is to believe in the One whom He sent to the cross. When Jesus asked His disciples, Who they thought he was, he said in Matthew chapter 13. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, his human fleshly name. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So belief is the key to understanding God's wisdom. The Corinthians and Christians today should understand this to be true. 2 Corinthians 10.5 We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What does this world you say? Is it consistent with the Word of God? We either reject it or we say, well, that's exactly what the Bible says. Every human philosophy that we encounter, what does the Bible say? Where it disagrees, we reject it because it isn't biblical. Where it agrees, we say that's what the Bible says. Paul expresses this lack of belief in verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek for search for wisdom. So in this pursuit of understanding the wisdom of God, it makes no sense that it's simply believing in the message of the cross. So Jews are always looking for signs. Oh, by the way, they were witnesses of the miracle of the resurrection. They were witnesses of every, every miracle that Jesus performed. They couldn't refute them. They couldn't denounce them. All they could simply say is, well, we just choose not to believe in it. 
Good for you. That doesn't change a thing. We are who we are and who you are and what you say you're going to do. And what we've looked back on you doing isn't enough for us. We need another sign. I mean, if you raise from the dead by the power of God, what greater sign can there possibly be? But they rejected it anyway. The Greeks are never satisfied. They have over 50 identical philosophical designations in their, at their disposal, and they still can't agree on what, the, what is right and what is not, and they still cannot find God. It's simply a matter of belief. Well, those poor Greeks who grew up under all of those philosophical influence and those poor Americans who have been bombarded through the public school system with all these anti-God sentiments, how can we blame them for not knowing where to find the wisdom of God? Well, we find that answer in the Bible, don't we? In Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. God has made it clear and they simply say, well, it can't be that simple. One commentator wrote this. Every time a person looks at a mountain, he should think of God's greatness. Every time he sees a sunset, he should think of God's glory. Every time he sees a new life come into the world, he should see God's creative hand at work. Yet an astronomer can look through his telescope and see a hundred thousand stars and not see God's greatness. A natural scientist can look through his microscope and see the intricacies of life beyond description, yet not see God's creation. A nuclear physicist can produce a thousand megatons of destruction, yet not recognize God's power. Isn't that true? All of man's technological and educational advances have just made the message of the cross and their minds even more ridiculous. We're too evolved. We're too smart. We are to be celebrated, not humbled. It's an absolute contradiction to man's human nature. And yet God has clearly revealed himself. The chief revelation of God's wisdom, of God's power, of his message has been rejected through Christ at the cross. Verse 23. Paul says, in contrast to all of this, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. Now remember, in the Greek New Testament, there is no punctuation. And our translators have put a comma there. But it really should be an exclamation point. We preach Christ crucified, Period. That's it. That's the end. That is it all. And this Christ crucified message is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews can't accept a crucified Messiah. The Greeks think it's foolish that God would need to die for the redemption of mankind. Can't we achieve that on our own? Can't we ascend the hill that enables us to save ourselves? God says, no, you can't and you never will. And so God's wisdom has defied 
the most religious and the most intellectual people of the day, the Jews and the Greeks he's speaking to here at Corinth, they cannot believe because they will not believe. It's as simple as that. But not all hope is lost because not all depend on worldly wisdom. Number five, God's wisdom is here to save those who believe. Verse 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The power of God is set apart against the weakness of man to save himself. The wisdom of God is set apart man's inability to know God apart from man's wisdom. Salvation is available to all who believe in the finished work of Christ regardless of their ethnic background, because Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. There simply is no other way, and God has deliberately chosen to make it this way. Paul now makes a very stark contrast between human wisdom and power and God's wisdom and power in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. The very part of God's plan and work that seems most ridiculous and useless from man's natural standpoint actually exhibits his greatest power and his greatest wisdom. Even if God could possess any sort of foolishness, which he can't, even if he could, it would be wiser than man's greatest wisdom. Even if God were able to have any weakness in himself, which he can't, but if he could possess any weakness, it would be stronger than the greatest strength that man could ever muster. Isn't it just amazing? Isn't that just absolutely marvelous? That God has chosen to allow us to understand what has confounded the alleged wisest people in philosophy and the most religious people of the day? He did so not because of who you are, but because of who He is. He's given us the capacity to believe. He's given us the heart to have faith. To understand, accept, and to live out the message of the cross. Do you know what it's like to be lost? Have you forgotten what it's like to be lost? I, I typically have, except for when I'm driving occasionally and, and the GPS takes me someplace that doesn't exist. And I get really, really frustrated when I don't know where I'm going. But I remember as a little child, I'd go into the fair with my family. And I got lost. I got separated from them. And I still remember standing in the middle of some carnival atmosphere, crying my heart out at the top of my lungs because I was lost. You know, the spirit of man is crying out for truth. That which will rescue them, provide safety for them, deliver them from their lostness. And God has chosen you and I to be ambassadors for Him. Those who will speak the message of the cross as truth in a world that has no idea what the message of the cross really means. You and I stand here today as 
objects of God's grace, to have been saved from our lostness, so that our hearts no longer cry out in desperation, seeking and searching for truth and meaning. Who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? Don't you know those answers? Don't you worship God for allowing you to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt against every human philosophy or every source of human wisdom? You know the truth and you're firmly entrenched in it. Praise God. Father, how we thank you for this marvelous gift of grace, this incredible message of the cross that has saved us. From our lostness, it has saved us from being bounced around by what the current fad of the culture is with what is truth and what brings meaning and significance and purpose. Father, I pray that you would rid our hearts and our minds of those things which are not true. Would you reveal them to us? Would you continue your transforming work in our lives and our spirit through your word? Father, we sit here today understanding that the message of the cross is for us. It's not from us. We have no part in it. And I just pray, Father, that we would be humbled and filled with gratitude at what you have chosen to do and what you have enabled us to understand. May our hearts and our lives be filled with the praise of the great God that you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him.